as a kid, I bleached my skin. Nine years old, I started bleaching my skin thinking, I just need to find a way to stop the abuse. I just need to get away. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of High Low with Amrata. This is an episode where I have a guest. This is the one that comes out on Tuesdays. High Low is a show where we talk about highbrow things in a lowbrow way and vice versa. And today I have on an incredible guest, someone who has become a friend of mine, but who I've always admired from afar, Tan France. Tan is a fashion designer. He is also one of the first openly gay South Asian men on television. He was on the show Queer Eye. We talk specifically about growing up South Asian in the UK, being Pakistani, being brown and queer, his experience with feeling like an outsider in his Muslim community and an outsider as a brown person growing up in a very white town. We also talk about his experience filming Queer Eye and his new show, Next in Fashion. So without further ado, Tan France. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Welcome to High Low with Amrata. I am so honored that you're here. I have so much respect for you, obviously, just as a person in the world, but also getting to know you and how absolutely wonderful you are. It's just a pleasure to be able to combine my admiration for you as a public person and then also our relationship into this glorious podcast. Thanks, Sam. Well, before, let's just be real. I was literally just saying, I don't really do podcasts anymore unless I actually love the person. And so I'm so glad I'm doing this today. That's, I'm very flattered and honored. And thank you so much. I wanted to talk about your background, because I think the first time we spent time together in London, you were talking to me about growing up Pakistani in England and also queer and what that experience was like. And I just want to hear about how you've become the person you are today and what that was like for you and how it motivated you. Gosh, that's a big question. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Here's here's how I honestly feel about this when I think about it in totality. It kind of makes no sense that I'm sat here right now with you. Legitimately, that's not a modest comment. If you had spent more time in England, you would be saying, how's that Pakistani gay person sat here in America as an entertainer with me? It just wouldn't have happened. Um, I don't know how many South Asians you know from the UK, but our people aren't usually on TV. And if we are, it's definitely not primetime stuff. It's not big stuff. Maybe that's changed within the last 15 years or so since I lived there, but that wasn't the case back in the day. And I'm positive that's still the case today. And so life in England, I was raised in a small town and a small town in England is not usually very diverse. Our small town was not diverse. Pakistanis were seen very much as second-class citizens and probably still are. And so you, we were what you would call the undateables or the untouchables. Like you could sleep with us, but you definitely couldn't take us home. You definitely couldn't tell your parents you were dating one of us. And so life was difficult. You had to navigate being Asian 
in a white community and being very Western in your Asian family. I'm the youngest of my siblings. How many siblings do you have? I've got three siblings who are all older than me. And they are Westernized, but nowhere near as Westernized as I am. When did your family move to England? My mom and dad moved when they were very young, probably at eight or nine-ish. And then we were all, my siblings and I were all born in the UK. And when you are raised in a family where most of them are very cultural, and then you are very Western, you are trying to prove your worth at home and your the fact that you fit in at home and then trying to find a place to fit in outside the home. It's a really bizarre feeling your whole life of thinking, I don't really fit in. And then when you layer on being gay also, you're like, holy heck, I don't fit in anywhere. I don't understand how to navigate the world. That must have been so lonely. It was it was such a lonely existence for a really long time. And but I was one of those kids, maybe it's because I was I'm the youngest child. I was incredibly stubborn and I was spoiled by my siblings who always took care of me, so I always felt protected. But I just wasn't willing to say I'm not going to be gay. I'm I'm going to hide it away. So by the time I was 16, I was out to a lot of people. I just wasn't willing to to not live freely. And I just thought if I have to move away, if I have to run away, whatever it takes for me to find happiness for myself, that's what's important to me. I will always love and respect my family, but I, I want to find happiness. And I was just sick of being in a town where we were attacked so regularly, like so regularly. We owned what you guys would call a bodega. And uh, and so when you have a bodega in a small town, you're brown, everybody else is white you're the target of attacks regularly. And so I did a documentary recently for the BBC that came out, uh, I think last year, and it's about colorism and also racism, but colorism. And uh, I was talking about what it's like to be a kid in a small town. And you have a two-year-old, I have a one and a half-year-old. Imagine if in the next five or six years, you send your kid off to school and almost every day they're beaten almost every day by grown-ups, by grown men. Could you imagine Sly in four or five years, a grown man hitting him because he's just the wrong color for that town? That is what life was like. And then I tried so desperately hard to think, okay, I'm brown, I can't hide that. Like, look at me, there's, there's no way of hiding that. What can I hide? I can at least try and hide the fact that I'm gay. And at home, I was a pretty little queen, really proud of being super fat. And did your family accept that part of you? They just were confused. I My family was so Asian, they didn't know what gay was. When I first told my family that I'm gay, almost everyone was like, what does that mean? And I wow. explained it and like two men together, I was like, uh-huh, because we don't see that anywhere. South Asian people in England back in the day, weren't watching English TV. Our parents were watching South Asian TV only. Right. We don't have queer people. Represented. Any, any queer people represented. Do you, have you ever heard of a show called Queer as Folk? Do you know what that Actually, is? Actually, no. Okay. So there was an iconic show in, well, I was 15, so it was probably 1997, 1998. Okay. Um, that came out. There was an American version that came out a few years later, but the British version came out when I was 15. And I watched the trailer for it and I was like, oh my gosh, there are gay people on TV. And I, so it came on at 9.30. My parents were usually in bed by nine. Everyone was out. Channel four on a Friday night. I turned on the channel and the first scene was these two men making out. And I was like, oh my gosh, where is this? 
And then they tell you where this town is, and it's where the the majority of my extended family lived, a place called Manchester. And I was wow. like, this place actually exists. There's this whole place called the Gay Village. It's this one street called Canal Street. And so I watched this show thinking, oh my gosh, in a couple of years when I'm old enough, I'm gonna run away and I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna find my people. That's where they live. So lo and behold, I did. So I just kind of hunkered down and waited until I was old enough to be able to leave the house and went and found my people. What a lesson in the importance of representation. 100%. I mean, do you think that was a motivator for you to become somebody who is on television? Yes, yes. The representation part. It, it, it was also it was also the thing that scared me the most. Truly the thing that scared me the most. So I don't know how much you know about how I got into TV. Can I give you cliff notes real quick? Yes, please. I think okay, everybody great. wants that. Okay, great. So I, I I think a lot of people think that I just was plucked out of nowhere and they're right. I was not an entertainer. I'd never auditioned for literally anything in my life. I uh, was a designer. I had businesses. They were doing great. I somehow managed to sell them and retire when I was relatively young. And then this company reached out and said, would you be interested in auditioning for this show called Queer Eye? No, of course I wouldn't. I'm an entrepreneur. I've never dreamed of being on TV. And that's a stupid idea. I'm not an entertainer. They convinced me to go for this audition. It was via Skype. I did this audition via Skype. It went really well. I thought they were just being really nice because they could tell I couldn't give a shit about being on this show or being an entertainer. And they were like, no, we really want you to come out to LA. Hollywood people aren't just friendly for being friendly. I was like, that can't be the truth. But yeah, sure, I'll come out to LA. Did this uh, chemistry test and got on this show. However, they offered me the show and because I was in such shock on the phone, I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Hung up and said to my husband, I'm not doing the show. There's no way. I, yes, I went through the audition process for a couple of days, but that was just to be nice and, and to get them off my back because they'd been hounding me for a few days. Um, I, I was just going to get it done and not ever think that I was going to get the job. So when it actually became apparent I was going to do this, I was like, Rob, I can't be the first queer Asian on a big show. And maybe there were other queer Asians. I didn't know of them. There weren't queer Muslims for sure. No, there were none. And I was like, I can't, I can't be the first. That pressure is going to be so intense. When you are the first at something, you are the punching bag. Yes, you're the person that people might really like and they can look up to and say, oh my gosh, I can hang my heart on that. If that person can live their life freely, so can I. But I was chicken shit. All I was thinking was, there are a lot of my people and they're going to come for me so hard. There are 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. There are, I think, 2 billion South Asians in the world, and we don't get much representation. And so if they have one person to focus their love or their anger on, and a lot of it is anger, they're going to focus it on you. And you know how it is. It's so common that you will get the negative. People aren't quick to tell you how much they love you, but they are quick to comment how much they hate you. Judge you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you have that perspective? That's such a wise thing to know. I think a lot of people, when they have the opportunity of celebrity or fame, yeah. they don't have that wisdom. I was always scared of it. I was always scared of people knowing. So when I left England, my family knew. And I said, look, I'm going to move to America and then I won't bring shame on our community because, the, and I didn't feel ashamed of being gay. I just didn't want my family and my friends who are all South Asian, all Muslim to suffer the wrath of the community. Because when you live in a tight knit community, especially a community of religion, and then 
you are different, you are other in some way. It's not just you you're responsible for, it's the people around you because they're gonna be judged also. And so I was like, look, I'm moving to America. Nobody ever needs to know that your sibling, your child is different. You're fine. And then comes this opportunity where you get to be on a global platform. And Netflix had made it very clear from the first day of auditions, this is, we are pushing this as a very big show. So I knew that people were going to find out. My small town was going to find out. My, uh, uh, my whole community was going to know. And they weren't going to come for me personally. They couldn't. They could comment on my Insta, but they can't come for me intimately. They can access my family. They can and access my And you felt protected friend. naturally. Yeah. What a burden though to feel for Insane. you that you're protecting the people that you love the most basically by potentially turning down a huge opportunity. I swear to God, I say this in complete honesty. There are still times when I just think, did I make the biggest mistake of my life? I love my job. I love what I get to do for a living. And I'm so proud of the impact that our show Queer Eye has made on the world and the, the impact that hopefully I've made on South Asians. However, I always worry about my family thinking, I know you're still being judged by the community. I know that people don't talk to you. I know that people treat you terribly because of me. I, I, will, I will carry that weight with me for the rest of my life. What do they say about it? They've been so graceful about it. They never critique what I do for a living, even though sometimes the things that I do are very fab for them. Right. And so weird for our community, for them to see, because it's so not the norm, the norm. And you know, I couldn't care less about the norm, but for them, it's against the norm. They're so graceful about it. They're like, you know what? It is what it is. You, you're living your life. You're not hurting anyone. We'll be right back with Tan France. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. I think a lot of people who are not marginalized have a really hard time relating to the experience of not feeling safe and having to factor in your security, not just for yourself, but for your loved ones. And I wanna know how you decided to say yes, because we didn't get to that point. You know, I called Netflix and they were hyper aware of what was going on. They said, look, we know that by hiring you, this is a risk. There's probably a reason why there aren't many queer Muslims on television. And so we will do all we can to protect you physically, your physical safety. If we need to provide security at your house, we'll do it. Wow. They, they were willing to go above and beyond, which was amazing. They gave me a full security meeting when the show was about to come out saying, are you prepared for what's about to happen? No, of course not. Anyway, they were really supportive. So that helped as far as my physical safety goes. When it came to the emotional toll, it was my husband. Mm. I had been talking, so I've been with my husband, Rob, for 15 years. At that time, I'd been with him for just under 10. And he was saying, look, I you've talked about this for a long time. The Brits or just entertainment in general aren't willing to share stories about South Asians. You, you, they couldn't care less. They won't put you on, on primetime TV. And I'm not talking about me, my people. You felt so alone as a kid because you were a bridge between the East and the West. You might get to be the person that does that globally. You're willing to turn it down because 
we're afraid. He was like, we can handle anything. We are strong. We're a unit. We're a team. We'll weather every one of those storms together. So if you feel like you can handle it, I'm there with you. And he's amazing. And I will say this. That's so beautiful. It was beautiful. And I will say this for anyone who might be listening thinking, yeah, yeah, he wanted the money and the fame. We were wealthy before we had retired. When it comes to fame, my husband doesn't join me for anything. He's coming to the premiere of a show tonight. But other than that, he won't walk a red carpet. He doesn't go to events. He loves his quiet life. He wasn't doing it for any of that. He truly, truly wanted my people to be seen. Mm -hmm. He loves our people. Well, he was able to remind you of the experience that you had as a little boy and looking at the TV and saying, oh my God, there is a world outside of this place. There is hope. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think about how love is a verb and an action and how often we forget that. And that sounds like you have love in that way in your life, which is huge. It's huge. Yeah. It's, it's such a grounding force for me. And the fact that his words were so powerful that it changed our entire life and it gave my life a purpose that I never, ever thought possible. You know, when when you're younger, you think, what's my legacy going to be? Who am I going to be? What, what have I got to offer the world? I never would have thought this. But if nothing else, um, I can look back in 50 years, if I make it to, I don't know, 90, I can look back and say, if I did nothing else, I hopefully got at least one person to look at a South Asian or a Muslim and think, maybe they're not not the worst. Maybe that person I can treat as an equal. Isn't that massive? It's massive. What was it like to be on the ground in these? I I heard Jonathan Vaness say that the sort of tagline when the show was first being created was turning red states pink. And I was like, oh, that's so great. I feel like I've never heard that before. And, (laughs) you know, um, but I was just thinking about that uncertainty in the beginning of shooting that show where you're going to these rural places. And I'm sure it wasn't unlike, I mean, it's America, but it's similar culturally, right? Where there's kind of the norm, quote unquote, and then you're an outsider. What was it like to go into those spaces? I don't think I've ever said this before publicly. So the first week we started shooting Queer Eye. Episode one is, uh, we the, the rest of every season is shot out of order. But episode one on season one is actually the first episode we ever shot. And I was already nervous going into it. I'd never been to the South. We shot uh, in Atlanta and uh, I didn't know how TV worked and I was already nervous. So you could have done any little thing that was a little odd and it would have affected me wildly. And within the first two days, I was shooting a scene with the hero and uh, he thought I was Mexican. And so he said something in Spanish and about uh, about Mexico. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish. Well, aren't you Mexican? No, I've, I've never even been to Mexico. Why would you think I'm Mexican? And he was like, well, then what are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Pakistani. And he was like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, well, it's next door to India. I'm a Pakistani Muslim. Muslim, you're a terrorist? Wow. And I just had to continue on with the scene and act like it was okay. And in look, on TV, I play a very nice person. I promise I am a very nice person. But if you come at me like that in real life, I've got harsher words than I would say on TV. I, I do. I'm, I'm still a person. And so I was livid thinking, are you out of your fucking mind? Like you think it's okay to say that to a person? But obviously I didn't say that. I said, well, Tom, let me explain why that's really offensive and why that's completely inaccurate and that you should never say that again. But in my mind, I was thinking, bitch, if we were anywhere else, 
I would have ripped your hair up. <laughs> oh my God. The responsibility that is on you to educate. Yeah. I went into this knowing that I was going to meet a lot of ignorant people. And my job was to educate them. Even though that wasn't my actual job, I knew my job was to educate the world on who we are, the beauty of my people, the kindness of my people. And it wasn't necessarily the South Asian component. I really wanted to show people that Muslims are lovely people. Terrorists are terrorists. We all hate them. Muslims hate them. Muslims are lovely people just like the rest of you. I mean, even the fact that you have to say that right now makes me cringe, but I understand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't know how this took this tangent, but I'm going to go there. You know, every now and then when there's terrorist activity, a terrorist attack, mm -hmm. I will get DM saying, aren't you going to say anything? I'm like, aren't you going to say anything? Why would I say something? When a Christian does something fucking insane, I don't see a bunch of Christians saying, oh, we really should go on live TV and, and apologize for their behavior. No. Why do you think I should be the one? Just because I'm one of the few Muslims, openly Muslim people on TV. There are many Muslims who are in entertainment. A lot of them don't talk about it because they don't want to be responsible or they don't want to get the shit for it. I just think I'm really proud to be a Muslim. I know that a lot of people don't like that I'm a queer Muslim. I'm still a Muslim. I think it's really hard to be in the space you are where, you know, if you were a Muslim person who was not gay yeah. and you had this position, you would at least feel like you had a community yeah. behind you. But then you are alienated from your own community that that makes you marginalized. So it's like, in some ways, the experience that you had as a child is now like just on a global scale. You are 100%. That's a yes, lot. It it's a lot. It just never went away. I just yeah. have a new form of it. But I got really good at processing it, realizing and this took a long time to get to realizing that's your problem. As a kid, I always thought I'm going to find a way to correct it. As a kid, I bleached my skin. Like nine years old, I started bleaching my skin thinking, I just need to find a way to stop the abuse. I just need to get get away. Basically trying to pass. Yeah, yeah. which is disgusting of at course. nine. Disgusting that we're, we're forced to yes. feel that way. It's awful that a child would yeah. feel that they need to change the color yeah, of their yeah, skin yeah. Because in of order what people to be are doing. safe and happy. Yes. Yeah, because of what the community is doing it's to you. Tragic. Horrible, horrible. And so I did all I could as a child, but now I just think, I'm not the problem. Yeah. That's an, such an important lesson, but I think that's hard to 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 yeah. really do. And I'm yeah. sure that there's moments where you 100%. still fall back, right? Because 100%. it's not just an enlightenment moment and then I'm fine and I- Never. You I, are, yeah. You're constantly working on those things. And even on in the moments where I feel the best about it, I still have that tiny niggling feeling thinking, oh no, is this, am I trying to convince myself? And that's so important, I think, for people to hear someone who has been so successful and has mm -hmm. built this kind of amazing, you know, business and personality, yeah that you still experience that yeah. is really important because I think I would hope that people listening, whether they're gay or they're Muslim or they just feel other in some way, yeah. to see that somebody who has quote unquote made it yeah. is still experiencing that, maybe they'll be easier on themselves. So that was episode one. What was it like five seasons later and going into those spaces. Did you feel yourself evolve and what was that like? Yeah, it's definitely different now. So we show, we shot two seasons back to back, season one, season two. So the experience was quite similar that whole two seasons. After that, because the show, this is really arrogant, but it's just true. The show got really big, really quickly. Yeah. Like within the first week, 
the show had become massive. And so my experience for season three onwards, night and day. Hmm. Because at that point we were coming into people's homes as famous folk, mm. which I know is so, but it's just true. They knew us. And because of what we do on season one, season two, you know my intimate thoughts about many things. It's not, I'm right. not playing a character. And you know me, we've hung out mm -hmm. a few times. You know, I would like to believe you can't see a difference between who I am on TV and who I am in, in real life. Totally. I don't know how to be different. Mm -hmm. And so when we were going into their homes, they knew us and they knew all about me. They knew all about the others. So there wasn't, there wasn't the shift that there was initially. And that's thankfully remained the same. And people treat us so beautifully almost everywhere we go. So it wasn't necessarily that you like toughened up or changed no. or whatever. It's that the no. conditions changed. Yeah. Wow. That's it. And one person or one would know that if you have this power where you are known publicly, you can, you're treated a lot better. Yeah. Like people might call me a fag behind my back, but when I'm in their home, and they're seeing somebody that's on TV, they're going to let that word slide, slide and they're just going to be really excited that they're meeting someone off the TV. I think famous people in general always feel really strange about talking about the privileges that come with fame and, and how things privilege. shift. And I think it's really important because... Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've got... I don't know why I'm holding my hand up as if you're my teacher. I've got one story that I'm dying yes, to tell you. tell. So 24 times coming to this country... I was stopped at the airport um, and taken for secondary screening, which is basically, they detain you for up to three hours and they ask you a bunch of questions, ridiculous questions. When was the last time you used heavy machinery? I don't know. What heavy machinery are you talking about? Just because I'm Pakistani doesn't mean I'm operating anything. I'm a queer man. You think I'm there with a fucking rig? Um, anyway, so uh, 24 times I was stopped and I started getting sassier and you sassier. You counted them. Yeah, because mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to one day make some kind of formal complaint and thankfully I did. And so it it got more and more ridiculous. And so I started getting sassier and sassier. Have you ever used heavy machinery? Yes, I use a sewing machine. Would you like me to make you a dress? Like shit like that. Um, what are you carrying in your suitcase? Dildos. Like just, yes. I was just so done with their stupid questions. And then after Queer Eye, I absolutely recognize my privilege now. I was stopped, I don't get stopped ever really, but there was one time I got stopped. The The person who was uh, the Customs and Border Patrol person didn't know what I did for a living, which fine, no big deal. Treat me like everybody else, okay. Send me through to that room, okay. But I'm gonna be a bitch about it. And then when I was sat there waiting, they were being really harsh to these two women in hijabs, which are the headscarves. And they, they barely spoke English, but they spoke my language and they were being really aggressive with them. So oh, it was so nice to walk over and say, what the fuck is the problem? Have these ladies done every, anything wrong to you? Do you think that they're terrorists just because they've got hijabs on? No, they're Why not. are you speaking to yeah. them so disrespectfully? Yeah, uh -huh. But they are being kind to you because they have no other option. You're being overzealous. You think that you have power. You don't. If you continue to do this, I will be posting it on my social media. I'm an entertainment and I promise you it will become a problem. It was so nice. Wow. So Talk about nice. using that privilege in a way that's not just for yourself, right? Oh, yeah, Being yeah, able yeah, to yeah. say to someone yeah. else and protect them and offer yeah. that. It felt lovely. Felt lovely. And so... I, I do love having this privilege thinking, now I'm going to use it however I can. Right. I'm, I, there were so many years when I just thought, gosh, I would love to find a way to get out of this situation and to now know, oh, I can get out of that situation. And if I can help somebody else, I will. Stay tuned for more with Tan France.
Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. You have this new show. You are a father, which yeah. is very exciting. Congrats. Thank we you are, so much. Um, sons are only six months apart. Yeah. So talk about the show with Gigi a little bit. I'm so happy for you guys. I'm so happy. So next in fashion, we did season one uh, three years ago. And now it's back, but this time it's with Gigi Hadid. Gigi and I have been friends for five years. She was the first entertainer who reached out. I don't, do you know how G and I became friends? No. Okay, so the show had been out for three weeks, Queer Eye. And Eva Chen had me at the Instagram office. So I went to the office and she had posted and Gigi was like, oh my gosh, is that, is Tam France still at the office? And Eva was like, yeah, why? She was like, can you ask him if we can FaceTime? I just, I, I need to talk to him, please. And so I was like, yeah, I'd never spoken to a famous person before. Oh my God, this is hilarious. What a great <laughs> like, story. Yeah, sure. And so we FaceTimed and she was like, look, I think I love you. I would marry you if you were straight. Will you please come over to my house? I need your advice. And I was like, yeah, sure. Wow. She was like, no, right. Like, are you free right now? I was like, yeah, sure. So I went over to G's house. We hung out for a few hours. She was going through something and she'd been watching Queer Eye apparently a lot for right. about three weeks. And it is that kind of show, again, where you feel like you really know us. And so she kind of knew what she was letting herself in for with me. Um, and so we got along great, but never did we think we'd have a show together. However, the next in fashion was coming back and um, they they wanted an American. And I was like, I, I know I know the person um, who should do it. They were like, we need somebody that you've got chemistry with. Okay, I know who the person should be. And so I called Gigi and I was like, look, they want an American this time around. Would you ever consider doing it? And she didn't skip a beat. She was like a thousand times. Yes, let's do it now. Like we could shoot it today and I'm ready. Wow. Um, she loved season one. Mm. And so she was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. But she genuinely loved the idea. Loved it. Right. So we started shooting and we were both, we were feeling good, but you mm. never know what it's going to be like working with somebody. You could totally. be great friends with somebody, but working with them could actually ruin mm. a friendship. Thankfully for her and I, working together was no different. No different whatsoever. Our days were 14 hour days really long days. You need to know when to shut up and sit down and rest. Yes. And when you need to be on, on, when you both want phone time, when you both want a nap. She understood me and I understood her within a heartbeat that first day. At the end of the day, we we're like, oh my gosh, this is going to go great. You understand how I work. I understand how you work. It's like work. traveling with someone or living with someone 100%. where there's all these like unspoken things where you're like, 100. I need beats. I need a break. I need a moment. It's so yeah. different from regular friendship mm -hmm. when you're going out for, with somebody for dinner. Sure. And so I don't know how it happened, but she created for me the best work environment I've ever had in my life. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, we did five weeks of 14 hour days. Even at the end of those five weeks, we were in tears saying, we can't believe it's over. I could do another three months of this. And when we FaceTime a lot, every time we FaceTime, she's like, I just want to, I just want to do it again. I just want us to be at that's work so again. That's so exciting. And I think that chemistry, I haven't seen the show yet, it's but I'm sure it translates yeah. onto the screen. It does. Yeah. I think the show is fantastic. I know I'm biased because I'm on it, but I, w I know how to watch a show objectively. Like I said to you when you first came in, I feel yeah. like everything you do is so thoughtful Thanks. and I believe you when you say something's good. You and Gigi are both parents. What's it been like? I want to touch on that before we end. Gigi is the person that I've gone to since Ismail was born for advice. She was the one who sent me a list of products that- So I was just going to say, she sent me the most beautiful care package- Same. 
after Sly was born yeah. that in those first weeks, yeah. it's you are not on planet Earth. Nope. You are in a cloud yeah. of keeping this little baby alive, yeah. trying to recover from birth. You know, you touch on something really important that finding people who understand you in those moments, because there are a lot of dark moments. In those first few months, I didn't birth my child, obviously, but I still had, a, a, it was a major life shift. And of you have course. a lot of dark moments where, literally dark moments where in the middle of the night, you're like, I think I'm gonna die. I'm yeah. so tired. I don't know how I'm gonna do this. How am I gonna get and to 7am? And I have to keep this child alive Yeah. Too. So to have people out there who have kids and you and I, hung out a couple of times when our kids were very, very, mm -hmm. very young. You gave great advice to having people who are going through it and are in the trenches at that time makes such a difference. It was my advice to my friend who had a baby um, about six months ago. I was like, I'm, I will give you everything you yeah. want, but find people who are around the same yeah. time period yeah. because you do forget things. I think yeah. as time progresses, you it's hard to remember the newborn phase. It's hard to remember what was the difference between seven months and yeah. you know 12 or yeah. whatever. But in that first year, those differences feel huge. And having somebody to say, oh yeah, you're going to think this thing is life and death. It's not. Yeah. Here's a couple different options you could do. And guess yeah. what? You're going to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And give it just a couple months and I promise you're not going to feel this way and you're going to forget about yes. it. And so that made life so much easier. And so having that community truly changed my life. It wasn't just G, it was many people. It, when they say it takes a village, it took a village to save me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on Thanks the podcast. This was, I'm so excited to see the show and, you know, congratulations on everything. And thank you for doing the podcast. Thanks for having me, my of love. Course. I adore you. I adore you. All right, everyone, that was Tan France, such a lovely person, so well-spoken and able to articulate his experience. I think there's so many things I want to continue the conversation about. I think thinking about safety and the risk that he had when he decided to be on television, about his experience traveling through America as a Pakistani queer man, also his new show and the chemistry with Gigi and even what we had to say about raising babies and newborns and what the importance of community around that. Thank you so much for listening. Go to Hilo.com. FM with your thoughts. Thanks so much. Hi Low with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment Bitch Era Media and Something Else production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, and Sarita Wesley. Our senior producer is Medina Parwana, and our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik, with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh. Thanks for listening.